Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so, so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today, and it is an absolute joy to sing with you guys. I love it so much. Uh, hello, Auditorium Two or Auditorium One across the way. You guys look uh, beautiful per usual, and you too, Auditorium Two. Uh, extra special thanks if you are visiting with us or if you are new here. We're really, really glad to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship, we invite you to stop by guest services in the commons over near Auditorium One. We also have a place in the back over here of Auditorium Two, and we have a team at both spaces that cannot wait to help you out in any way they could. Uh, And if you call Fellowship Greenville family and you have questions about getting more involved, please go by Next Steps for more details on community groups and and mission trips and Bible studies, et cetera, et cetera. And we also have a team there that just cannot wait to help you. Uh, If you are newer with us, we're in a series right now that we're just calling Seven. And in this series, we're exploring the letters to the seven churches in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And this past summer, we did a series called Church Matters. And that's like this seven series cousin. They're closely related because as God's people indwelt by God's spirit, we want to know how he is working. We, the church, want to know how he's working in our midst and around us and what he's saying to us. And we do that by listening to the Spirit's voice in Holy Scripture. In fact, that's how each one of these seven letters concludes. It simply says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so we believe that paying close attention to what God spoke to these churches, in doing that, he would speak his word afresh to us. And we'll continue our study today in Revelation chapter two. If you would like to get there in your Bibles, that would be great. You can scroll there or flip there in your paperback Bible, which I'm still a huge fan of. Revelation chapter two. I I promise we'll get there in just a few minutes. Revelation chapter two. Now, as you're finding your way there, you want to put your thumb in Revelation two. Uh, I have three brief little stories for you today. Uh, And as we've mentioned, um, some of these might be a little more mature in nature. So three brief stories before we get to Revelation. First story is about Emily. After Emily and her husband had their first baby, she got an extra little bit of time of maternity leave for which she was super grateful, but she was not looking forward to going back to work. And thankfully, she only had to go back part-time. So Emily was mainly just doing Tuesdays and Thursdays, and she would go back to the office on random occasional Fridays. However, uh, this did not make home life for Emily any less exhausting. Their little boy was a colic king and sleep was terrible. Nobody got sleep. All the grandparents lived out of state and her and her husband uh, just seemed on edge and at each other's throats more than they have ever uh, felt. Strangely and sadly, because of all these things, over the next eight months, Emily started to find a lot of like emotional support and a lot of solace in a new coworker. He had been recently hired during her maternity leave. And not only was he like on Emily's special team at at work, but he was a really natural and good listener, which she felt her husband wasn't that at all at the time. And the back half of these eight months, Emily found herself making excuses to go to the office almost every Friday and not just the occasional Friday. And she would always tell herself, yo, it's because I got the grumpy baby and work is just stacking up. But about eight months in, after maternity leave, after she went back, she found herself unashamedly uh, flirting with this new coworker. And she knew it and she didn't stop it. 
And on one Friday, <clears throat> she outright lied to her husband and said that she had to stay late at the office, but her and a few of her office friends were actually gonna leave work early and go get drinks. And something happened there that made her entire life and marriage flash before her eyes. There, uh, this new coworker reached out and put his hand on her leg. And just in a moment's time, her whole life and marriage flashed before her eyes. That's story one, that's Emily. <clears throat> story number two. Michael is a junior in college. He's getting deeper and deeper into his engineering major and he loves it, but it requires a lot more out of him than his first few semesters. He's also getting more involved at church. He's in some on-campus groups. His flag football team is doing really, really well. He's got expanding circles of friends and he's got a part-time job now. And what used to be like an occasional secret sin for Michael, looking at porn, has now become a regular struggle, sometimes looking at it multiple times a day because it's the only space in which he feels control. And he knows it might be an addiction, but he's like, no, 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 no. This is something that I can quit anytime. And he knows it's wrong, but again, it's the only little pocket of space he has in his life where he feels like he has power or control. Here's the other thing. <clears throat> Michael grew up in church and he knows it's wrong. He knows it's wrong. And he knows that the women that he's looking at are made in God's image and that they are somebody's daughter. And worse yet, he heard a pastor say that summer in between his sophomore and junior year, he heard a pastor say that if you continually look at porn, you help keep sex traffickers in business. And that thought haunted him. But still, he couldn't completely stop. Like his grades started to suffer and the shame he felt made it impossible to like actually enjoy his friend groups the way that he used to. And once in a while, he would go and he would like confess to a friend in a small group or something, but he would never say the extent of his sin because he was too riddled with guilt to say how bad it really was. So Xmas, uh, Christmas break hits and, and he, he experiences just a few weeks of like freedom for a little bit, but then when the next semester starts back, the sinful patterns pick right back up. In March, <clears throat> Michael did start dating this girl and that gave him fresh motive to, to stop that, um, but he didn't. And it, you would think with a new perspective in his life, that would help him, and it helped him a little, but he also was plagued by this. He knew that if he and this girl, this sweet girl, if they kept dating, he was gonna have to sit down with her at some point and talk about these like compulsions, and that conversation just froze him to death. Story number three, <clears throat> uh, meet my friend Brad. Uh, he's kind of retired now, but Brad uh, was a pastor and a church planner and a worship leader. Uh, here in the American South for almost 35 years. He's very, very happily married. He has a few kids, even has a few grandkids now. I love hanging out with Brad, dear friend. However, when Brad was a teenager and all of his friends were like, man, this girl's so beautiful. Oh my goodness, she's so, oh wow, I can't wait to take her to the prime or go on a date with her. <clears throat> Brad uh, was never interested in any of that. Instead, Brad found himself attracted to other guys. And he was scared because he knew that in his Southern conservative church that that kind of thing was railed against with anger and angst. And so he could never actually talk to people about the thing that he struggled with. And Brad's told me that he knew at that time at a deep level, despite like the unnecessary anger and angst from his church, he knew that studying after studying scripture and deep in his heart, that that was not right and that it, it was not God's best for him. So Brad, he did the best he could to ignore all those impulses and he tried really, really hard. He, he told me, he said, I even prayed so hard that I would find 
uh, girls pretty. I prayed that time and time again, but nothing took. However, fast forward a few years, <clears throat> out of teenagerhood, he's like 21, he's in this college Bible study, Bible study and in walks this girl named Melissa, and immediately Brad felt like God, say, God was saying to him, hey, you need to go marry Alyssa, uh, Melissa. And obviously that couldn't be God, that had to be lack of sleep or some bad Taco Bell or something, but Brad couldn't just like, he couldn't shake the thought, okay, you need to go marry this girl. He saw her a few more times at Bible study. And so he works up the courage to go ask this girl on a date, and the date went really well. They enjoyed each other's company, <clears throat> and they hung out a few more times. So on like date four or something, Brad goes, hey, I'm about to tell you something that's gonna sound super weird, and it doesn't make any sense to me, so don't ask me to explain it. But the first time I ever saw you, I felt like God tell me, hey, you need to go marry this girl, and, and she interrupted, and she said, I know. He basically told me the same thing. So, you know, like, <clears throat> Brad wets his pants, and they keep dating. <clears throat> And they keep dating, and Brad would, would go on to tell Melissa about his same-sex attraction and that it hadn't gone away, and graciously and impressively, she was unshaken. So they got married, and they're still married to this day. However, several years into marriage, and as Brad is trying to get into ministry and stuff, several years into their marriage, Brad had an affair with another dude, and it all but devastated and undid his entire life, his marriage, and the ministry he was starting. And he hated himself for what he had done. And he felt like any hope of building back trust just felt like an out of reach miracle. However, by God's grace and through time and prayer and repentance and counseling, uh, their marriage survived. And I wish all you could hang out with my friend Brad. He's a great guy. Now, <clears throat> why do I tell you these stories? Uh, this is not shock effect, I promise. I'm trying to make sense of our passage, which you'll see here in a minute. And also, I just want you to know, like, uh, for us pastors, these are every week conversations. But here's why I tell you these. <clears throat> because in each one of these, the enemy is seeking to entice people away from God's good design. And in each story, the bait on the devil's hook is sexual in nature. And sexuality in the Bible is not just the reality of intimacy shared between a husband and a wife, but it's also meant to be a metaphor of sorts for the intimacy and connection between God and his people. Like the Bible begins and ends with marriage. And so it should come as no surprise to us that Satan seeks to allure us away from the power and purity of those things, whether or not we're married in this life. And so here's my question <clears throat> What made Emily go back to the office every Friday? Every Friday. What made Michael keep looking at porn? What kept dragging Brad away from his wife? What is, the, what is it about the allure of false intimacy that makes us keep fishing in a poison pond? We know it's poison, like why we keep fishing there. And yes, these things matter on an actual and individual level, but if our Bibles are open before us, they are also a flagrant metaphor. <clears throat> and here's what I mean, here's what I mean. What made Emily go back to the office every Friday is the same question as, what makes us turn away from faithfulness to God and intimacy with God? Same question. Why are we so easily lured away to sex 
and substances and politics and sports and social media and gossip and mindless entertainment and popularity and materialism. Why? Why do we so freely give those things power to define our lives? Why do we metaphorically cheat on God with stuff so dumb and bland and temporal? Why? Today, here's how we're gonna boil down all these questions since it's Jesus himself speaking in Revelation 2. Here's how we're gonna do it. This is our question. How does God himself want us to think about the enemy's invitations to false intimacy? How does God want us to think about the enemy's invitations to false intimacy? This is exactly what Jesus is addressing in his words to the church at Thyatira. There are people in that church and in the church today that are being lured away into infidelity. Unless we think this is primarily a problem for people who aren't us, Jesus wants us, he wants us to read it ourselves, feel it ourselves, he wants us to do a heart check. And that's why we're asking, how does God want us to think about the enemy's invitations to false intimacy? And as mentioned today, Jesus himself will answer this question in Revelation chapter two, verses 18 through 29. That's our passage, Revelation chapter two, verses 18 through 29, the letter to the church in Thyatira. Um, after I read this passage, we're gonna collectively express our gratitude for God's word this morning, even the heavier parts here. After I read, I'll say this is the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line, you too, Auditorium One, Make it a really loud and grateful one. Thanks be to God. Here we go, Revelation chapter two, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But... I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. <clears throat> Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great affliction unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. To the one who conquers, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, even as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. Okay, wow, <clears throat> we got a lot in front of us, and so here's what we're gonna do to answer our question. We're gonna do three things. Number one, we're gonna do a behind-the-scenes look in Thyatira. That's the first thing we're gonna do is peek behind the historical curtain there. Number two, we're gonna summarize our passage and then kind of bring it into today for us. And then number three, 
we're gonna give a few ways that we ourselves can respond to Jesus' words. So three things, behind the scenes in Thyatira, summarize and synthesize, and then <clears throat> number three, gonna give some response suggestions. So first, what is going on in Thyatira? <clears throat> now, um, even if you just heard that passage and you're like, that phrase is weird, why does it say that? Why is that in the Bible? That's a little odd. Even if you have some questions, not dismissing your questions, the big picture of this letter to the church is really easy to understand. <clears throat> Here it is. There is a strong contingency of people in this church that are being ensnared by a cultural idolatry and a gratuitous, a gratuitous sexuality, and together these things amount to spiritual adultery. Again, because that's Jesus' diagnosis of this church. There's a growing percentage of people in this church that are being ensnared by a cultural idolatry and a gratuitous sexuality, and together these things amount to spiritual adultery. <clears throat> now, if you actually felt that, that's bad, but it's even worse, and here's why it's worse. Because look, a lot of these people, hey, you ready? A lot of these people, if you hung out with them and you talked to them, you'd be like, hey, you're really nice. Come be in my small group. How do I know that? Look at verse 19, look at what it says. Jesus says, I know your works. I know you love people and you serve people and you've been working really hard. Your latter works exceed, exceed your former works. Like you want to hang out with these people. That's what makes it even scarier. But strangely, there's something else in their lives something really like menacing, right? Something scary and dark. <clears throat> they are being so enticed that they are becoming more defined by their idolatry than by Jesus, who they profess to be Lord. And that's why it's worse. Because I tell you right now, you know, it's, it's easy to watch a YouTube video about somebody you disagree with that you don't really hang out with that much and go, good grief, dude, your priorities are all jacked. You're so messed up. You're living in sin so hard. But that's not who Jesus is talking about. I'm saying Jesus might be talking about you or somebody else in this church. Jesus is talking about not problems out there. He's talking about problems in here. Now, in order for you to feel this uh, <clears throat> at a gut level, we need to pretend. We uh, do pretend for a few minutes. We get to pretend to be citizens of Thyatira. So let's do that for just several minutes here. <clears throat> In the first century, by the way, when I was studying this week, Thyatira is the longest letter of these seven letters, and it's the one that we know about uh, the least historically. So I was like, oh, good, great, sermon prep. Um, like, it's, it's, it's tough to wrestle with stuff, but one of the main things we know about Thyatira is that it was known for its guilds, which might sound weird, <clears throat> not guilds like fish, guilds, G-U-I-L-D-S, which were essentially like clubs, like for a specific practice or trade. There might be, check it out, like a woodworking guild. <clears throat> you might have like a pigments and dye guild, which Lydia in Acts 16 may have attended because she was dye, purple uh, cloth girl in Acts 16 there. But you might also have, uh, Thyatira definitely had um, a heavy metal guild for, for bronze and copper and Metallica and Black Sabbath. <laughs> and I'm, that's a very good joke. And this is how you know that, though. In verse 18, if you look at verse 18, Jesus is pictured with feet, look, feet of burnished bronze because those people would have understood that process, right? Now, here's the deal. At these guilds, you don't just hang out with other people who do what you do and go, hey, this is what works for me in my business. It's not that. It's not a networking event. At these things, you would meet for like four hours and you would eat supper together and everybody would have a drink and then a more polished veteran uh, entrepreneur in your area would give up and like give a speech and maybe a toast. But then you would take a break 
maybe even sing some songs before the break, and then you would take a break and you would come back together and you would pour out a wine offering to the local Roman deity, thanking them for the glorious gifts of pigmentation and dye or bronze working or whatever your deal is. And then, watch this, people just kept drinking on into the night and they would start being like, yeah, and making business deals with other people. And pause for a second. What you have to remember in our world is that we keep our commercial, political, and religious enterprises kind of separate. Not in the Roman world. All three of those things are one thing. They're all completely married and overlapping in the Roman world. So after you get drunk and you make all these business deals, what you would do to show even more gratitude to the Roman gods and show more faithfulness and allegiance to Roman politics and to prove to your business partners that you were serious, you would go perform any number of sexual acts with the Roman temple prostitutes, these cult prostitutes that were there at the Roman uh, pagan deity temples every day. And this was just an understood practice in Thyatira. So what started out as like a once a month business meeting, if you were really committed to it, would end as an orgy. That's what would happen in Thyatira. And it might entail group sex, oral sex, homosexual acts, or any array of fornication with temple prostitutes. And look, doing this was just part of going, hey, I'm here for Rome. I'm here to pledge allegiance to Rome and to Roman gods. And it was often just part and parcel of, hey, making it in your small business. Wow. So if you're a member of the church in Thyatira, what do you do about all that? Sweet Christmas, what do you do about all that? Well, here's what happened. We actually have a story of what happened. There was one outspoken individual at this church and they would say things like, guys, guys, going to the like guild meetings, it's not bad. It's okay, leave at halftime, you're good, right? Just leave halfway through. And then people were like, you know what, you're right. And then this person was like, yeah, I am right. And then over time, this person started to say things like, you know what, I'm a prophet, I speak on behalf of God. And they started to gain influence in the church and they were like, you know what? It's even okay for you to go and stay through halftime and stay for the second half and maybe even be a Christian witness there, but just don't do the weird political sex stuff. We good? Good. Nice. And Jesus metaphorically names this person in the church of Thyatira. He names this person Jezebel because in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings, Queen Jezebel did a very similar thing with ancient Israel and foreign gods. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. Look. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. That's the guild parties. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And we don't know this for sure, but the more reading I've done, it seems like this Jezebel character went on to say something like this. You know what? Not only is it okay to go hit the guild parties, and not only is it okay to go and stay through the entire thing, it's also okay to go do all the fornication stuff as well and to get as deep in bed with Rome as possible, and it'll be okay. You gotta do it for your business. God will forgive you. It sure seems like that. And I hope you feel how sinister and demonic that is. And I'm not saying it's sinister and demonic. Read the text. You know what Jesus calls it in verse 24? Look at it. He calls it the deep things of Satan. And he tells this church, if you're gonna keep doing things the Jezebel way, 
trying to swear allegiance to me and Rome at the same time, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna verse 22, I'm gonna throw you into great tribulation, great affliction, unless you repent. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that Emily and Michael and Brad didn't start off in the deep end of sexual sin. They slowly got more and more okay with little things until those things started to pile up and become the new normal. And what I'm saying is that the church at Thyatira wasn't founded with fornication as an option for their sexuality. But slowly over time, even maybe with good motives, some of them justified baby step after baby step until it became a standard practice that they thought God would just ignore or shrug off. And the results of this are, in my humble pastoral opinion, I think maybe some of the harshest words of Jesus in the whole Bible. Now, that's behind the scenes of Thyatira, and I hope you feel the gravitas of that, because now we have to kind of take that and drag it into our world. We have to summarize it and put it into our current cultural space. Um, And I think I think a good summary and synthesis of this can be found in this line by theologian David Wells. He writes, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's got a, like a, that's got a sharp edge to it. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Now, if you grew up super legalistic and mega, mega conservative, I'm not talking about going to that specific movie or having a beer when you watch the game. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about patterns and habits and ruts of idolatry that you have completely justified over time that you knew from the get-go were sin. It's just whatever makes sin look like, oh yeah, of course. And in the Bible, worldliness is metaphorically called spiritual adultery. And in Thyatira, metaphoric Adultery included actual adultery. So now we have, man, we have a very fragile and specific task ahead of us. We have to pause for a second and assess the uniqueness of the Christian sexual ethic as it contrasts our current culture's sexual ethic. Because that's, that's the friction, that's the rub behind what's going on in Thyatira. So here's my attempt. And this is just, this is just me trying to, to wrestle with this. Sex in our culture is about the freedom I have to do whatever I want with whomever I want. And sex in scripture is about intimacy with the person you're married to. Sex in our culture is a reminder of the the expression that I'm allowed as an individual. And sex in scripture is a reminder of God's expressed love and loyalty to his people. Sex in our culture is a commodity to be exchanged and sex in scripture is a gift to be treasured. Sex in our culture points to personal pleasure and happiness as the most important realities, and sex in scripture points to God's forgiveness and faithfulness to his people as the most important realities. Sex in our culture refuses to accept sexual limitations because that would be inauthentic and boring. And sex in scripture receives sexual limitations as boundaries within which we can cultivate intimacy and joy and faithfulness. And finally, sex in our culture is a means to the end of my own desires 
Whereas sex in scripture is a metaphor for the closeness God desires with his people. Now, some of those might be more of a spectrum uh, than clear-cut options. But what I'm telling you and what Jesus is telling Thyatira is, hey, hey, if if you're regularly choosing the first option out of that pair, you could end up shipwrecking your entire life. Jesus is saying, if you do culture's definitions of intimacy over God's, you could end up eroding your faith down to nothing or even proving that you never had faith to begin with. And the mechanism for these things, the mechanism for it, the way it happens is quote unquote worldliness, where sin looks normal and righteousness looks strange. And this is how God wants us to think about the enemy's invitations to false intimacy. That they're wrong because they're defined with us at the center of intimacy and not God. And we can't, we can't move on too quickly from this. These things have to elbow their way into our everyday lives. So here's what you have to do, here's what I have to do. You have to ask yourself, all right, be a met- do a metaphor here, just chill. Am I going <clears throat> to the guild parties? And if so, how long are you staying at the guild parties? Like how you do business isn't, hey, it's not technically unethical. It's 2023, loosen up. But are you gonna stay until like the temple prostitutes come out? Or maybe you're like, <clears throat> you're, you're Emily, you're Michael, you're Brad, and you're there at the thing, you just can't even remember how you got there. So do you, do you have to leave? And if so, when do you need to leave? Or you just quit your bronze making altogether? You stop it. What should you do? And according to, according to your standards, your spouse isn't meeting your needs. After all, life is really, really hard right now. So you, you, tell, you, you deduce. A little bit of pornography is not that bad right now. And you're not like outright flirting with your coworker. You just really, you just really enjoy the people that you work with. Dude, I get it. Absolutely, life can be tough. Absolutely, talk with your spouse about your marriage and absolutely go enjoy the people you work with. But be honest with yourself. Find other people who can be honest with you. Why, why haven't you left the, the copper club yet? Dude, we just sang it. How, how, what, please get this. How worthy is Jesus to you? How worthy is he? Is he leave at halftime worthy? Is he, I gotta quit the copper club, go bankrupt worthy? How worthy is he to you? Ah, Jim, you you have no idea the financial pressure I'm under. You just don't know. You don't know the fragile layers of home life for me right now. I'm not saying that I do, but what I am saying is this. Either he's worthy or he's not. Either he's provider or he's not. Either he's the faithful groom or he's not. Hebrews 10, we joyfully accepted the plundering of our property because we knew that we had a better and a lasting possession that is Christ. Acts chapter five, we joyfully left the presence of the council because we had suffered and we were counted as worthy to suffer honor for the name of Jesus. 
Romans 8. These present sufferings, these sufferings are nothing to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Where are you being seduced by the world's standards? Where in your life are you starting to define things mainly from the perspective of empire and not God's perspective? Is there any way that you're presumptuously using God's grace as a crutch right now for your own desires and your own plans? In Daryl Johnson's commentary on Revelation, and if you do get one commentary on Revelation, this is the one I think Charlie Jason and I would all suggest. It's called Discipleship on the Edge, and his insights are wonderful and scholarly and pastoral and not scary to read. Um, when Johnson writes about Thyatira, he tells the following story in his uh, commentary. He writes, when I pastored in the Philippines in the 1980s, many of the men that I pastored traveled a great deal for work. And if you traveled in Asia during this time, you quickly learned that sexual temptation was pervasive. Nearly every big city hotel, Hong Kong, Bangkok, Tokyo, all had unique uh, hospitality service readily available. And so, on one of our church's men's retreats, one of the men shared how he resists the temptation. He keeps a picture of his wife and their children in his wallet and in his briefcase. Shout out briefcases. And he, RIP, and he can't, he, can't open, he can't open either of those without seeing the one to whom he has promised his love. And so, when the temptation invariably comes knocking, he takes out his picture and he looks directly into his wife's eyes. And one evening, he was eating dinner uh, at a hotel restaurant when he was enticingly approached by a hospitality girl and she lingered and so he took out his wallet and showed the picture to the woman and pointing to his wife, he said, I, be I belong to her. <laughs> and immediately, it broke the allure. Immediately, it snapped the temptation. Now, <clears throat> Johnson's point, of course, in all of that is that it's not good enough to only say what is wrong. The true and right intimacy must prevail. What is beautiful must be rejoiced in. Revelation's picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God should be enough for us. Christ must be seen as glorious to us. And this is why the picture of Jesus to the church at Thyatira is so stirring. Look, look at verse 18. He's called the Son of God. That's what Caesar went by. That's what the local deities went by. He has fiery eyes and bronze feet, meaning he sees everything aright and he judges faithfully. And strangely, for those in Thyatira who don't yield told Jezebel, verses 26 and 27, say that they will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And if you know your Bibles, this is a picture from Psalm 2 of when the Messiah comes, how he will bring definitive justice and peace. And Jesus is saying to those who overcome, you'll share in my reign of justice and peace with me. So broadly, this picture of Jesus here is one of him as a faithful and just judge. But right at the end, verse 28, I love this. He says, if you're faithful and you stay true and trust in me, look, look, look at verse 28. He says, I will give you the morning star. What in the world? 
I will give you the morning star. And it's Revelation, so people put forward a bunch of options and commentaries are all over the place. But read the whole book. <clears throat> hey, look up here. You know how Revelation ends? The whole book, you know how it ends? The last few lines say this, that Jesus himself is the morning star that his bride longs for. And you know what that means? Jesus gives us himself. He alone is our true intimacy. I will give you the morning star. And this is what Revelation is pleading with us to grasp. Jesus wants us to know that we were made for intimacy and closeness and connection and relationship with him. And anything short of that will leave you unsatisfied and empty. We have to get this. We were made for intimacy with Jesus and anything short of that will leave us unsatisfied. Invitations to false intimacy are short-lived. They are unsustainable. Old girl Jezebel, she might offer pleasures now, but Jesus offers us pleasures evermore, as the psalmist says. Jezebel and all her children have death coming as their inheritance, but not even death can stop our shared inheritance of justice and peace with Jesus because he is our intimacy, he is our satisfaction, he is our greatest treasure. And this is the picture of him that we're to constantly have with us to look in his kind and fiery eyes and say, I belong to him. Only he can break the allure and snap the temptation. He is the faithful bridegroom. He is the lion and the lamb. Only he is the truly worthy one. Not the stuff, not the things, not the business, not the money, not the ideal. Only he is worthy. He is the great judge, judged in our place at the cross for our sins. And even if, look, even if our hearts are wayward, and even if we're lured by the world's standards, and even if sexuality is our greatest idol, his forgiving grace and fidelity continually woos us back home. You know what he says about Jezebel? I gave her time to repent. He beckons us home. Some of you don't know the full story of how Revelation ends, and I would love to tell you uh, near the very end, the great enemy Babylon is defeated. Babylon is Rome, it's the empire. And about Babylon, pay attention to what is said. John writes this, he says, come out of her, my people, lest you partake in her sins. And if you heard that with sexual overtones, you heard that correctly. John is saying, hey, why would you ever, ever cheat on Jesus? Why? There is no lasting love or life in Babylon. Empire cannot give you the intimacy that you're looking for. And you know why I know this? Because the next chapter, chapter 19, is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not a guild supper with fake intimacy, a glorious banquet with true intimacy. Why? Because he is our intimacy, and he is our satisfaction, and he is our greatest treasure. And he calls us out of that which offers life and can't deliver, and he calls us into belonging and intimacy and connection with him and his people, world without end. And I hope you believe that today. Uh, we're gonna conclude a little bit differently this morning. I told you I would give you some responses um, to God's word to us, and here's how we're gonna do it. I'm gonna put them up on the screen. Um, and these are things that we can find and see in our passage. And I'm gonna give you guys some time to meditate on and pray about these things. If you need to look at the screen and scribble them down or take a picture, 
do whatever you have to do with all that. But then I, I, I encourage you to do this. Just literally and actually take a deep breath and ask the Spirit to search your heart and mind about these things and to stir in you greater faithfulness to Jesus. So take, take a minute or so and ask the Spirit to search your heart and then I'll close this in prayer. Yes, Holy Spirit, please, please uh, loosen our grip on our way of doing things and make poor and shallow definitions of beauty and truth less and less appealing to us. And please, Holy Spirit, make the ensnarements and enticements of the enemy and the lies of the enemy, make those things weary to us. But Holy Spirit, please make all of this stuff byproduct of us falling more and more in love with Jesus, please. And maybe, may he be ever glorious to us. May a constant picture of you, Jesus, be all we need of what you have done for us at the cross and in your resurrection. Jesus, we love you, we confess our ongoing need for you, and we trust you. You're the best, amen.